Welcome to Sea of Fire Ministries with James Myers. Today, James takes something of a hiatus from our series to introduce some of the parameters regarding the cross as we consider Christ's crucifixion in our sermon for today. You can click on the link in the description to visit us on YouTube. We pray this message serves to edify the church. All right, so today we are taking a hiatus out of our series because we are approaching our second message is going to be regarding the cross. And so I wanted to take some time, I think it's important to take some time, to really look at some of the subsections, as it were, some of the theological subjects that has to do with the cross. And we're going to do that somewhat at an introductory level, okay? I'm going to, we'll try to breeze through this, but there are some foundations that I think are important to recognize as it applies to the cross. Um, You know, one thing I think, you know, we're supposed, we're called to worship God with all of our hearts, with all of our minds, with all of our souls, right? So all of those are involved. And I think in our time, as I've mentioned, I think the mind is something that is severely lacking, not only in the world, but also in the church. You know, uh, it's very emotional, emotion driven and so forth. And there's been a departure in regards to the mind and how necessary it is uh, really in salvation ultimately again as we've discussed it's incongruous to believe in a Jesus you don't know kind of a thing so we are going to begin start talking about atonement atonement most simply defined is reconciling God and mankind through Jesus Christ okay so we're going to start this subject and again there's much to be considered with the cross uh, you know again I couldn't I couldn't exhaust this subject and if I had a thousand lifetimes so we're gonna go at as speedily a piece at a pace as we can but so the first thing I want to discuss is the necessity of the cross now before we even get into that uh, as you've noticed I'm no longer wearing the cross I think the the symbol of the cross actually is pretty magnificent actually you think of you think of other religions but you think of something like a logo even you know where companies try to try to make this image that kind of reflects who they are kind of a thing and the one thing that the Christians landed on after a few hundred years was the cross which if you think about it is pretty interesting I'm not going to take much time to consider that. I mean, early on, since they were persecuted, they would come up with many different things. So I'm sure you've seen the fish, right? What that was, was basically in the, in the Greek, it was an acronym talking about Jesus Christ. And so only the initiated, only the Christian understood what it meant. So they kind of had to use these symbols that wasn't so obvious to those who were persecuting them. And then they came to the cross. I'm no longer going to wear this anymore. Um, I think part of the reason uh, I was wearing it was because we've never actually considered specifically the cross. I mean, the cross is in the entire Bible, so we've we've talked about it, but somewhat in passing. And so, I think it's my blessed duty to proclaim the the cross again. Every message ought to be at least pointing to the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross is an internally historic event. In other words, if you look at the cross, the way I've seen it, the way I see it anyway, it's kind of the intersection of eternity and time. It's the intersection of immaterial or, you know, uh, metaphysical 
and the physical or space. It's truly the, the, the cross is the intersection of an eternal plan of God. And that's kind of something we're going to have to recognize. Now, let's just jump into it. Now, the necessity of the cross. St. Anselm, who we've talked about, wrote this little book. He actually is famous for uh, three uh, books, uh, Monologium, uh, Proslogium, and uh, Curdeus Homo, which translated means why the God-man. Now, he basically ultimately, because ultimately, so we've also discussed in narratives, whenever you're reading something, whenever you're writing something, whenever you're studying something, the most important questions are who, what, where, when, and why, and how, right? We know the who, we know the what, we know the when, we know the where. I, it, it behooves us to always ask the question why. Every day, you will never exhaust the cross. And that's really our central motif as Christians. Without the cross, there's no Christianity. Okay, so the, uh, the, basically the um, conclusion that he came up with, with why the God-man, why is there a Jesus Christ? Why did God have to send his son? It's ultimately because of the justice of God. And we're going we're gonna to take some time to consider some subsections of that, okay? Now, so what this is, is the crux of the matter. Why and how? That's really kind of what we're going to start laying out today. Now, if you think about it, if you look at the crux, that really comes from the Latin. Think of excruciating. You know, that's all centered around uh, the Latin word that actually stands for cross as well, which is interesting. So we're going to consider the crux of the cross. I just think that's interesting. <laughs> but, okay. So, what, what in theology we call Jesus' satisfaction of, for the atonement is he is our vicarious substitute. Now, uh, that sounds fancy. It's not all that fancy. Now, the, one of the Greek words in the Bible is huper. I mean, this is the transliteration, so I gave you the pronunciation. If you look in your concordance, that's really the number for it, so you can see where else it's used, so you can get a better idea of what it means. Uh, but it basically means in behalf of or for the sake of. I think one of the easiest examples is, you know, I went. we were huge Spurs fans. Right, and I was blessed to go to the 2014 championship game. Right, game five, where we were heartbroken the the year before, and I've never been in an atmosphere like that. Sadly, not even in a church. However, it's it was really a family atmosphere. I mean, it was loud. <laughs> you know, everybody was excited. But once we once we knew we were going to win, which is really interesting. That's kind of what I want to talk about. When, once we knew that we were going to win. We were elated, hugging each other. Strangers weren't really strangers. We were unified with, with these people we don't really know. Because in essence, they kind of represent us. You know, they represent the community, but they also represent their fans and everybody who's interested in what's going on with them, right? So that's one way to kind of think about this representation. They won that championship kind of in behalf of us, even though they don't necessarily know us specifically. Another good example would be the fact that we're Americans and Texans. I'm a very proud Texan. I'm a very proud uh, American. 
I mean, there, there are many problems, you know, it's, you know, America isn't perfect and so forth, but we, we are united in so far as we're Americans. Now, real quickly also, I think it's also fabulous that since we're citizens and we're of heaven and, and we're all sons and daughters of God, wherever you travel, Wherever you travel, no matter where you are, no matter where you go, and if foreigners come in and they are Christians, it's actually, I've, I've encountered this, it's a fantastic experience because you are still linked to them. You, you're brothers and sisters with these people, and this is a union like no other. It's more than being American and Texan, certainly being more than a Spurs fan. So I find that fascinating. But that's probably the easiest example to kind of define or to show what uh, what what the Greek word who pair means. So these are some a couple of examples in Luke 20, uh, chapter 22 verses 19 and 20. This is Jesus and he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body. This is essential because going into the cross, we're not going to talk much about this, but going into the cross this is in, this is uh, crucial. Crucial. There you go. There's another one. All right. This is my body, uh, which is given for you, for you. So on behalf of you, my body, his body is given for us on behalf of us. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Again, on behalf of you, for you. Uh, John chapter 10, verse 11. Remember, we've seen this. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep so on behalf of the sheep he is our representative and did want to get into this but remember paul talks about uh, adam being our first representative okay so we're we're all born in adam fallen essentially and then christ is our second representative the true man representative when whereas when we're grafted in him he imputes righteousness to us. And we'll talk about that somewhat briefly as we go along too. So that's basically, you know, the, the where we get the vicarious substitute. So he's the vicarious insofar as he is the substitute on behalf of his people. Okay. <clears throat> now, sin basically defined in the Bible is defined three different ways. Okay. Now, a good definition of sin is actually from the Westminster Confession, but part of that is a larger catechism where it's answering questions. So the 24th question was, what is sin? And this is a base, very simple breakdown. Sin, sin is any want of conformity unto, so any want of conforming to the law or transgression of the law of God, simply put. Uh, Susanna Wesley actually has a really sweet quote it's actually whatever weakens your reason impairs the tenderness of your conscience obscures your sense of god take takes off your relish for spiritual things whatever increases the authority of the body over the mind that thing is sent to you however innocent it may seem in, in itself so i think that's a wonderful one too that's john wesley's mother anyway so that's a good definition of sin now the three different ways okay we're going to spend a little bit of time here is a debt to a pecuniary debt. Think of, think of money, just in, exchange, in economic terms, just an economic debt, all right? So we're indebted, and Jesus Christ says we are like debtors, I mean, to put it simply, we are debtors who cannot pay their debt. So we are indebted to God, okay? Because of sin, this is what sin is caused, but these are three different ways that the Bible kind of 
uses sin. The other one is enmity or hostility, okay? And we'll get to that. The other one is penal or legal, okay? So again, we're, we are indebted to God insofar as, so going back to Anselm, right? The reason Jesus Christ came was really to satisfy the justice of God, okay? Now we, one of the things we must recognize, especially as Christians, is that God as creator has absolute sovereignty and he has absolute authority. Now we've talked about how the authority has the word author in it. Now when you have authority or when you have sovereignty, that means you have the right to impose obligation. And God of heaven and earth, the sovereign one of heaven and earth, has the right and means to exact and, and, and expect you know, these, these rules or these laws for, for his creation to be a certain way, to live and exist in a certain way. Now we've broken that law. We have. God is absolutely perfect and he's been absolutely faithful. And so he keeps the covenant, he keeps the terms of this debt. And we'll get into this more detail. I just want to kind of, you know, introduce these three and then we'll kind of break them down even more. Now, enmity. Enmity, everybody talks, everybody's worried about the wrath of God as though God is absolutely angry with his, with the people, with people in general. God is angry, necessarily, justly angry with sin. He will, he does not wink at sin. That is something we must recognize as well. Many people just wonder, why doesn't he just forgive us? Why doesn't he just get over it? No, 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 no. God is absolutely perfect. He is absolutely just, and he's not about to just shed away sin from his creation, okay? So it would be un completely unjust of God, and we'll kind of talk about that too, okay? So it's really about our enmity to him, our hostility. You know, we think he's just, sometimes, you know, when we don't get our way, we, we are expecting something, or something terrible happens to us, we blame God, and we start getting angry at God. Or, you know, I was made this way. Are you getting angry at me? That's unfair. That's unjust. And we'll, we might get into that somewhat briefly. Legal. So basically, we, are, we have also committed a crime, treason ultimately, upon the sovereign king of the universe. We've committed treason in our sin. So legally, legally, we are indebted, in other words. So there is a legal punishment that's necessary, or a penal punishment. So penal means basically punishment, okay? So let's go to, let's start with the first and we'll work, work our way down. Now, a, a financial debt or, or a pecuniary debt is easy, right? Let's say I go to the bank or whatever and I take out a loan of $10,000, right? It, to pay it back, I have to pay that with an interest, right? with interest rate and so forth. And that's possible, right? I mean, that's possible. That's easily possible. I mean, that's not hard to ex expect. What if I took a $10 billion loan and I had three days to pay it back? Is it possible for me to pay it back? No, you're shaking your head no. It's, it's doubtful. I wouldn't put any money on it, <laughs> but it's at least possible that I can scrounge up some sort of way to come up with, I mean, I wouldn't count on it. Again, it's very unlikely, but it's at least possible. When we're talking about the indebtedness from us to God, so 
everybody says, you know, everybody gets a second chance. Let's just take that face value, right? Fine. So we broke his command once, right? Well, we broke this the second time a long time ago. Now, what's the standard of righteousness? Before a holy God, what is the standard by which we are supposed to be before a holy God? The standard of righteousness is perfection. Is perfection. He is absolutely perfect, and so he will not have any imperfect thing before him. In his presence, in his immediate presence, okay? And we'll talk about that somewhat in our next message. However, so the moment, the moment we are imperfect, the first time we are imperfect, how do we pay that back? Not necessarily. There's really no way to pay that back in and of ourselves. You know, we're talking about we'd be paying it back for infinity. You know, there's no way. It's absolutely hopeless. Okay? Okay, now let's move on to the enmity. Now, Christ is our mediator, right? And we've talked about the mediator is really the one who stands between two parties. It's the one who, you know, mediates between two parties, okay? And where, where obviously Christ is our mediator, is mediating man to God and satisfying the judgment of God. So the reconciliation through his mediation to satisfy God's just wrath and to satisfy our nonsensical enmity and hostility. When we are in Christ, we are no longer at least as hostile. You know, there's no, there's no enmity. We might be prone to sin, which is a hostile act toward God. But we repent of that. We see it for what it is. So it's entirely different on the other side of the Jordan, on the other side of the cross. Okay, but he comes to mediate and satisfy the hostility and the, and the relationship that is broken. Now, if you have a broken relationship, if you have a mediator between two people, what is that? What do you need for a broken relationship? You first need an established relationship. Right? I mean, it wouldn't make any sense to mediate between two people who don't know anything about each other and never have a relationship. That's not where you mediate. We are, he mediates between party, two parties who have an eternal relationship, but that relationship has been broken. God is basically the victim of our sin. Okay? So everything must be satisfied for him because he's the victim, so to speak, of it all. He, is, he has kept his side of the deal. In creation, he's absolutely holy, he's absolutely perfect, he's absolutely just, he's absolutely loving. Okay, and we'll get to that. Penal. Okay, let's go back to the borrowing $10,000. Let's say, instead of borrowing $10,000, I go, you know, one of my neighbors, and I steal $10,000. All right, let's say I steal $10,000. Now, let's, let's go back to the debt. Let's say I can't pay the debt, and, you know, my dad or somebody comes in and says... Oh, well, let, I'll, I'll pay the $10,000. It's actually, the, the person, the lender, is actually obligated to take that $10,000. Because the only, our only deal was that I owe him, or I owe them, the bank, $10,000, right? That's our deal. That's the deal. So he's actually obligated to take that. What if I stole the $10,000? And then, you know, he calls the cops, you know, and they find my fingerprints, and they come to me, and I say... You know, oh, sorry about that. You know, that, 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 that is wrong. I'm sorry. Here's the $10,000. Why 
why don't you go and give it to back give it back to him and let's just be good here all right is that good <laughs> are we good here now what happened in this the neighbor has been violated it's more than just a pecuniary debt it's more than just the $10,000. He is not obligated to just simply take the $10,000 anymore. He, he justly expects a, a penalty of sorts. Okay? Now, the only one who can determine whether or not that penalty should be, could, can and should be exacted is actually, it should be the victim. Right? And in this case, again, it's God. God is the absolute victim. So, now, going back to the neighbor, though, let's say, here, here's the $10,000, and you know what? My dad, or my dad comes to him and says, look, I, my, what my son did was absolutely terrible, but he's decent, you know, but I want to take his place. I actually want to go to jail for him, and I want to pay the penalty that he's incurred legally. You know, you've got the $10,000 back, but legally, there must be a punishment. How about I take his place? Now, he is not obligated to agree with that. The neighbor is not obligated to agree with that. God the Father, in Christ's satisfaction, see, because of a lot of time, a lot of Christians, a lot of people think that God the Father is this angry, angry God and just cannot wait to exact his wrath and to come down and set the world aflame. But Jesus, Jesus is a nice guy, and he's like come, come out and gone to his father and been like, hey, look, how about this? How about this? You just, you, you pour out all your wrath on me, so you can just settle down. You know, let me, let me do this. I'll run your, I'll run your air and satisfy your, your anger so you can just calm down. Who is it that sent his son? For God so loved the world that he gave. His only begotten son. This, Jesus Christ continued to say, I have not come of my own. He was sent and he is given. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. All of these are met by the grace, the unmerited grace of God. They're necessary and they must be paid. But he is absolutely under no obligation to accept the vicarious substitution, especially legally nor with the enmity. The pecuniary is a, bit, is a bit iffy, maybe. But it's essential to recognize that we have these three that have broken our relationship to God. And we are utterly helpless. We are utterly hopeless to satisfy this. And you can, you, you know, we, a lot of times people, again, going back to, well, we, I, I was made like this. You know, I, you know, we're all in sin. Why, why didn't he just grade on a curve? You know, that's why I've also said, you know, a lot of people think, you know, as long as we're not like Hitler. And again, in our time, for the greatest part of history, the question was, are we justified by grace or faith alone in the, in the church anyway? Or are we justified by our works? You know, can we work out our own righteousness? No, no, no. And a thousand times no. Now, does that make us utterly hopeless? Yes. Yes. There is no way to mend this. We are destined for hell, for an eternal flame, an eternal separation that we initiated. That we initiated. God the Father has sent his Son to bring 
his people. He has chosen a people in eternity. This was a plan in eternity to send his son. God is not caught off guard. Okay, he, he knows all. Okay, so they, within the Godhead, they made this plan. But God the Father is under no obligation to accept it. It is something we must recognize. That way we even adore our, our Savior and our, just our God more fully and more definitely. In other words, defined and understanding certain, of, certain parts and parcels and, and really what the cross means. Why it was necessary, the why and the how. How is this satisfied? If, if it is to you know, satisfy a righteous, just God who is full of justly wrath, then how? How is it satisfied? So that's what we're going to, I mean, that's kind of where we're going with this. It's essential to recognize. It's essential to recognize. There's much to be said about this. There's much to be said about this. Within the church, I don't want to get into this. Within the church, there are basically three different sections. You know, you've got Pelagianism, and, and I'm not going to get into this much, and semi-Pelagianism, and then Augustin, Augustinianism. Okay, and now this kind of Augustinianism kind of evolved into um, Calvinism. Spurgeon said Calvinism is just another word for Christian uh, or, or uh, biblical Christianity. I agree with him on that. So, but so that evolved into Calvinism. Semi-Pelagianism yeah, developed into um, Arminianism. Oh, technically. So within those three, it's my opinion that semi-Pelagianism, though I think it's full of many faults, many theological faults, and uh, Augustinianism. I think this is an intramural debate within the church. The Pelagians, I, I, it's my opinion, they don't see that the cross is necessary. They think that basically uh, Jesus Christ is an example of dying to yourself, you know, and living a humble life. Jesus Christ was a great moral teacher, so they don't find the necessity of the atonement. This is widespread within the church. That's why we're doing this. That's why we're doing this. We must know why the God-man and how God is satisfied. And to recognize that the atonement was the cross isn't some passing circumstance to satisfy an otherwise just a irate, insane God. This is all by the justice, the righteousness, and the grace by God that we have not done anything for. We've done everything against, and we continue to on this side of glory. Okay, so it's essential to, reckon, to do this. All right, next thing I want to talk about, the meaning of the cross. Now, we've talked about these two words before, expiation and propitiation. So we're going to spend very little time here, but expiation... Ex Expiation. So the prefix, I think this is a good way to kind of remember this. The prefix X means out of, out of, right? So out of the, the removal of guilt through payment of a penalty or the offering of an atonement. So this removes our guilt and our sin. This is the cross. This is what Christ did on the cross. It's to remove our sins. Remember, we talked about imputation. You know, we imputed our sins on Jesus and Jesus imputed his righteousness on us. That's propitiation. 
so the prefix pro means for. So restored into fellowship and favor with God. Appeasement. Appeasement. Both of those must be done. It's, it's, this is crucial, again, to recognize. The cross was necessary. There was no other hope. There is no other hope. There is no other way to restore our relationship to our Creator, who we even came from, the whole reason for being. Okay, there's no other way outside of Jesus Christ, His life, His death, His resurrection. And, but all of none of those are without the even make any sense without the cross. You will see in the epistles throughout the New Testament, the focus is less on the resurrection, on the ascension. They're, they're, they're essential, and they'll talk, they do talk about it. But it's really the cross. Remember Paul said, using hyperbole, but he says, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. Now, obviously, <laughs> you know, the apostle talked about a lot of other things, but he was saying, this is the central motif of Christianity. You take away the atonement. You take away Christianity. You take away the church. You take away the necessity of the atonement. And, and the satisfaction of God, there is no church. And, and the meaning of the cross falls. And Jesus Christ basically died for nothing. It's essential to recognize. So it's essential on both of those fronts to, to warn us and keep us away from that nonsense. And also to encourage us. This is fantastic. This is, this is good news. This is wonderful news. That God the Father has condescended to send His Son, to send His Spirit for His people, His chosen people. Again, going back to Paul also used the illustration, I don't know if we've talked about this, but he also used the illustration of, of the potter, right? The potter can make any kind of vessel he wants, right? He makes some for honorable use, and he makes some for dishonorable use. Let's just use like a toilet situation. Dishonorable use. Wouldn't want to be a toilet, right? But... What kind of sense would it make for that vessel to complain about complain to the potter? Like, why have you made me thus? Why have you made me like this? You didn't have to exist at all. You didn't have to exist at all. But this is your purpose. This is the purpose for what it's necessary. You know, we don't need toilets. We don't need certain these, you know, kind of vessels that we don't like talking about, but there's one. Here's a good example, but it's essential. It's, it's essential to recognize that he is the potter and he has is, he is made vessels for honor. That is the church. That is his chosen people. Okay. It is not unjust for him to judge fallen men and women. It's absolutely just. He would be unjust. He would be unkind and unloving if he just turned his eye to sin and let us all come into the kingdom as we are. There would be no longer a holy God. There would be no longer perfection. We all want this utopia. We all want these wars to cease and so forth. Well, that doesn't happen if justification is by death, which is ultimately how it's seen today. Again, you know, justification for the history, especially of the church, is either by works or by grace. Today is basically by death. Everybody's going to heaven. That's nonsense. It's necessarily nonsense. Not just illogical. It does not satisfy our broken relationship to God. Okay. 
again, as I've said, or as I said, the cross is an eternally historic event. Okay, so propitiation. This is one, one time that uh, Paul had used this, actually. and It's in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. And we've discussed this somewhat briefly, so we'll, we're, I'm going to read this to you, talk about it a little bit, but then move on. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed by being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. So apart from, from his obligation, his, his true obligation, who's, he's you know absolutely just to expect. So apart from this, though, being witnessed by the, the law and the prophets, those who are proclaiming this obligation, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. He's talking about Jew and Greek. So again, this is coming out of the old covenant into the new covenant. There is no difference. Um, for all have, all, every single, everybody, except for Jesus, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The glory of God is really his presence. Simply put, but it's his presence. When the Bible talks about light, it's really the light of being in the face to face with God. All the Jews were waiting for this time, for the presence of God. That's why in, throughout the Bible, there's, there are all these references to light. You know, John uses that quite a bit. And James talks about, you know, with, with God, you know, there's no, he's, he's the father of lights. There's no shadow of turning. You know, he's pure light. His glory is pure light. Okay. Being justified freely. So justified. This is, this is justification. This is why this is necessary from the atonement. Freely, by his grace, freely. Again, he did not have to accept this. Freely by His grace through the redemption. We've talked about redemption somewhat briefly, and that's just going to have to wait for another time, God willing. But again, you think of Jesus Christ as our surety. Again, He's kind of like the down payment, right? To pay back all of our debts. He is the surety that that debt is paid. He's our guarantee. He's the guarantee of a better hope and of a better covenant. Remember in Hebrews? Okay. Uh, that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth, he set forth as a propitiation. Again, this imputation of his righteousness, that's why God the Father couldn't just send him at 33 years old and for him to die on the cross. He had to live a perfect, righteous life. Be tempted just like we are. Be tested just like we are. Suffer in this world just like we do. And really gain the righteousness to Impute, impute on us. That's propitiation. We now are given the righteousness of Christ before the throne of grace without being in the Son. And with the Son not being in us, we have no access to the throne of grace. It's essential. This is the meaning of the cross. This is the purpose of the cross. This is the telos of the cross. Remember teleology? Hope so. But anyway, <laughs> um, so propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over. Now, what he's talking about is the Passover. All of these things pointed forward. He's not saying that God overlooked sin in the old covenant. He's saying what he used was to show really the, 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 the fruition of what Christ has done. These, these were types and shadows, just like the book of Hebrews gets into. But, so, uh, to, de 
got it, uh, yeah, and his forebearance got it passed over, the Passover, uh, the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be, okay, to demonstrate at the present time. So again, myth, myths, all, think about all the mythologies in the world. Very few of them, at least, have anything to do with a historical event. You know, they're just making all this stuff up. This is absolute history. This is real. It happened in time and space. Eternally planned, eternally fulfilled, and eternally satisfied. But this is his righteousness. So demonstrate at the present time, the continued present time, until Christ returns. We all look back to this time. We all look back to this time. Even unbelievers look back to this time. They'll continue to mock and so forth. But we all look back to this time. There's been nothing ever in the history of mankind like the cross. There's good reason for that. So that he might be just and the justifier. God, by nature, is absolutely just. So again, he will not wink at sin. He will not simply turn his face around, you know, turn around and just ignore it. No, it must be dealt with. He is a righteous judge. So he's so he sent his son to do this, to continue being just because he is just. However, he justifies. He, being the eternal, universal, infinite judge of all the universe, has decided to send his son to justify his people to satisfy the, the, to reconcile our separation, which is an eternal separation, which is a hopeless separation. That's why I've also talked about the worst part of hell is not the punishment, it's not the flame, it's not the darkness, it's not the chains, it's not the wailing and gnashing of teeth. It is the eternal separation from God. Now God is all in all places and he's the one who's pouring out his wrath there. So, I mean, the presence, the lost presence isn't absolute. However, they are absolutely hopeless. Hopeless. Their, their time is over. They're vessels made for impurity. They were basically made for an eternal damnation. That does not make God unjust. We must recognize that. That makes us unjust. There will be no man or woman who goes to hell that didn't deserve it and chose to reject our only hope. Our only hope. There will be no men or women who go to heaven that, that rejected him as well. And there will be nobody who goes to hell who did, who did truly trust and were in Christ. He will not lose one. He has not lost one except the son of perdition. Let us recognize that heaven and hell, the judgment of God, is out of the goodness of God. This is all by His grace. We do not deserve this. N neither those, those of us who get to enter glory and forever be in the presence of our Creator and our Redeemer, 
That's not because of us. We deserve the flame. We all deserve it. By nature, we are children of wrath. That's what the Bible says. Many people bemoan being made in sin. You know, I'm made a sinner. The Bible really talks about is that we're born sinners. So I like to see that as James talked about, you know, don't, don't be deceived, brothers. You know, you're tempted because of your own desires, right? So you conceive. You're, that's where the temptation is conceived. That's where the sin is conceived. Then you give birth to sin. And then sin, once it's fully grown, gives, uh, it gives birth to death. Becomes death. This is the ways of things. You know, we did this. We have broken the covenant. We have broken the righteousness. We have broken the image that God created us in. In which he created us. Okay. Alright. So, Matthew 16, chapter 16, 24 and 27. Then Jesus said to his disciples, this is something we must recognize as Christians. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his own soul? Or for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Okay, so if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, deny his sinful nature, see himself for who he is. Remember, who am I? You know, all this, these broken men, you know, uh, like Isaiah before the throne of God. <laughs> Whoa! is me for i am a man of unclean lips i dwell with the people woe is me denying myself because now i'm before the throne of god and i see myself absolutely sinful absolutely filthy so deny himself and take up his cross we are all given a cross to carry the world hated him they will hate us. I'm not talking about the cross of a difficult time at work. I'm not talking about a terrible inconvenience. I'm not talking about your car breaking down. I'm talking about true persecution. I'm talking about mocking. Anything that happened at the cross. We are in Christ. And should we be in Christ, the world will hate us as well. There will be enmity between us and the world. The enmity that we had between us and God is now, now against, now really with the world. The world hates him, they will hate us. So take up your cross and follow me. Follow him. We've talked about that enough. For whoever, I mean, for now. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever just, whoever is so enamored with the world in this life will lose it. He forgets the creator of all these, of his life. So whoever seeks to save his own life, that's why I've also cautioned against seeking to, to earn your salvation. This, this redemption by works is nonsense. You cannot be saved. You cannot muster up enough righteousness to become perfect again. Imperfection is, imperf is imperfect eternally 
There's no way to pay that back. There's no way to fill in the void except through Christ. So, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Again, woe is me. It's really just losing the perspective of the life in this world. That is a temporal perspective. That is a temporal life. Lose this temporal life, and we will find it in eternal life. We must see what our Savior is saying. So that's why, you know, that's the other reason I say when you read your Bible, take your time. We're not trying to get from the back to the front, or the front to the back. Actually, I think another good way to read the Bible is actually from the back to the front. That's another, it's very interesting. It's, it's incredible. Anyway, so back to front, front to back, doesn't really matter. All right, uh, so, but whoever, so. For what profit? Okay, so again, this is going back to the pecuniary, the debt that we've incurred. For what profit? So what is it? What would it profit a man? What, what good does it do a man? How wealthy is he truly if he gains the whole world? The whole world. He owns everything and yet loses his soul. What kind of wealth is that? You're not taking any of it with you. This is all temporal. This is all fleeting and passing away. So what would it profit a man to gain the entire world and lose his soul? That's a tragic thing. That's a tragic thing. That is absolutely unprofitable. I mean, it's far more severe than that. Or what will a man give in exchange for a soul? How are you going to pay this debt? What are you going to do? You know, what are you going to give Jesus $10 billion? You're going to offer the world to Jesus like Satan did? That didn't seem to work out all that well. We have nothing to exchange for our soul except our Savior. For the Son of Man will come in the glory of His Father, in the presence of His Father, with His angels, and then He will reward each according to His works. So, the goats on the left hand will be judged by their works. The sheep on the right hand will be judged by his works. Do you understand? That's, that's why the imputation is so necessary. That's why the cross is so necessary. That's why it's so necessary that we even start to look at these things and we will get into more detail, God willing, as the days and the years and the weeks and months go by. Okay? God willing, we have some time to prove. But again, this is why we're here. We're here to feed our minds Remember what I've also said. The mind, you can't get to the heart except through the mind. But the heart fills the mind with many things. Jesus says, it's not what goes into a man that defiles a man. It's what comes out of him. It's what he says. Man speaks out of his heart. Out of either the decay of his heart or out of the glory and the grace of God. It is indwelling in his heart. Okay? So we must feed our minds with the things of Christ so that he can fill our hearts with himself and he can fill our souls with his glory. We are get, it's very interesting that we are meant to worship in these three different natures. You know, mind, heart, and spirit. Where you have the Trinity. It's kind of interesting. You can, you, you can feed and nurture all three of them individually. That's what we're doing right now with the mind. But they must be 
corporate. They are one. We are, we are one body. We are one soul, but we are one person with basically those, these three natures, which are meant which are meant to be enjoyed with our Creator. So we must not leave one off for the other. You know, emotions are so big in our time. The mind, the mind is essential. The mind is essential, and this is something you can determine to do on your own, for yourself. It's the only reason I even started studying any of this. I couldn't get enough. Part of it started because I was trying to denounce it, but then I just couldn't get enough. Okay. Now the way I want to conclude, one of the books I love the most, everybody needs to read this book, Pilgrim's Progress. It's from John Bunyan. He was around the 1600s. It's, it, it's spoken, it's, it's written in such a way, it's, it, it says it's a similitude of a dream. So it's, it's this man, the writer, is dreaming this. Okay. And it starts off with a man named Christian. His previous name was Graceless, but his name is Christian. I mean, it's really obvious what he's saying, but it's beautiful. He uses verses, he points to these verses, and so forth. However, so Christian reads this book, obviously the Bible, and he's awakened by it. And so he, he decides, I must, I must run as hastily as I can to the celestial city. To the celestial city, okay? And he's getting all sorts of flack from his wife and his kids and all sorts of stuff. And he still goes. And he runs into many different obstacles, the slow of despond, all sorts of different obstacles. And then eventually he comes to this man named called Interpreter. It, it, again, it's not, it's not all that difficult. I mean, there are some words like pliable, I'm sure you all don't know. So there may be some. However, so after Interpreter, okay, kind of shortly after Interpreter, this happens. So he had a burden on his back. He had a load on his back. He recognized that he had this load. It's sin. And he knows he must, on the way to the celestial city, he must be lightened from this load. There, there's much, even before this, here he has to ascend this high mountain. It's a dark mountain. It's basically the law. Okay. Now, this part is after visiting with the interpreter. Now I saw in my dream that the highway up which, which Christian was to go was fenced on either side with a wall, and that wall was called salvation. He takes that from Isaiah 6, uh, chapter 26, verse 1. Up this way, therefore, did burdened Christian run, but not without great difficulty because of the load on his back. He ran thus till he came to a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross, and a little below, in the bottom, a sepulcher. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up with the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble, and so continued to do till it came to the mouth of the sepulcher, where it fell in, and I saw it no more. Then was Christian glad and lightsome and said with a merry heart, He hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. And he stood still a while to look and wonder, for it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should thus ease him of his burden. He looked therefore and looked again, even till the springs that were in his head sent the waters down his cheeks. That's from Zechariah 12.10. Now as he stood looking and weeping, behold, three shining ones came to him and saluted him with, Peace be to thee. So the first said to him, Thy, sin, thy sins be forgiven thee. That's from Mark 2.5. The second stripped him of his rags 
and clothed him with a change of raiment. That's from Zechariah 3, 4. The third also set a mark on his forehead and gave him a roll with, with a seal upon it, which he bade him look on as he ran, and that he should give it in at the celestial gate. That's from Ephesians 1.13. So they went their way. Then Christian gave three leaps of jo for joy and went on singing. Thus far did I come, laden with my sin, nor could aught ease the grief that I was in, till I came hither. What a place is this! Must here be the beginning of my bliss? Must here the burden fall from off my back? Must here the strings that bound it to me crack? Blessed cross, blessed sepulcher, blessed rather be the man that there was put to shame for me. It's the burden. It's the burden that we all have, carried around in our hearts, on our backs, in our souls. The mere sight the true sight, when he gives you eyes to see and ears to hear, the mere sight of the gospel, of the cross in particular, loosens that burden, and they go tumbling down into the grave, into the tomb, and he will rise out of that. And we will be new. We are made new by his life. By his death, though, we are given life. It's that burden. Though it tarries in this life, even after coming to faith, the cross has destroyed that. That's why the more you f we follow our good shepherd, the more we are conformed into his righteousness, not to pay the debt. <laughs> the debt has been paid and we can't pay it. Not to mediate the hostility. This, this fracture is because of us and we can do nothing to mend it. Not to seek to gain the, to work out our penalty. It's an infinite judgment. It's an eternal judgment that we can't do anything for. No. We conform more and more into the image and the likeness in the righteousness of God. Because of what Christ did. It's not only necessary, it's the most blessed gift, it's the most blessed... Un he, was, he is not obligated to do this. God, God could have just destroyed everything. Once Adam and Eve fell, he knew what was going to happen. But fine, let's just say he was caught unawares. Well, you know, he could have just set the whole thing on fire. He did not have to do this. He did not have to send his son. What a gracious gift. What a spectacular, gracious, loving God who has come, who has sent his son to usher in a people for a new heaven and a new earth for eternal glory with our God, eternal presence in the light of God, where sin is no longer a load off our back, it is just eternally no more. And that love, that hostility that we had, becomes pure affection, pure adoration, something we don't know this side of glory. 
even the love and the affection that we can have with each other and our spouses. Don't even compare to that great joy and affection we have with our God. We were made for. We were made for. Thank you for listening to Sea of Fire Ministries. We hope and pray this has blessed you in your walk with God, and we hope you join us again next week. You have been listening to Sea of Fire Ministries, where the Word of God is life.